Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite and with me as always is Andrew Owen. And this time it's real. Yes, I do. It's real. This, time. this whole time I've been a fictional character. Yeah, he's been in the Matrix, but now we took him out. <laughs> and well, we're here in Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Tennessee, enjoying beautiful day. Oh, yes. And ACDA happening That's, right that, now. That is it, the American Choral, Choral Directors Association. And you're That's, performing tonight. Yes, we are performing the, the Hymnus Paradisi tonight uh, over at the Tivoli Theater, so it should be lots of fun. Awesome, dude. And, well, I chose uh, Rachmaninoff, actually, because he died in Tennessee. I didn't even know that he died in this state. <laughs> well, he didn't die here. His last concert ever performed was here. Well, Which in Orange Basically, basically like dying. Yeah, it was basically, yeah, <laughs> for him, yeah. But, yeah, his last concert was actually in Knoxville, and so we haven't talked about him. And we haven't talked about him, so we're going to talk about him, of course. So... <clears throat> Sergei Rachmaninoff, what, how do you say his second name, middle name? Well, his middle name is Vasilievich. Vasilievich. Sergei Vasilievich Rachmaninov. Rachmaninov. And, of course, as you can tell, he's Russian, or he's got the Russian, uh, the Russian t- stuff going on. Oh, sure, yeah. See, he was born in 1873, uh, and he died in 1943. Um, he was a Russian composer, of course, pianist and conductor. Rachmaninoff is widely considered one of the finest pianists of all time and, as a composer, one of the last great representatives of Romanticism in Russian classical music. Oh, yes. Um, early influences, influences, of course, are Tchaikovsky and Korsakov, no doubt about that, and other Russian composers gave way to a personal style notable, notable for its song-like melodicism, uh, expressiveness, and his use of rich orchestral colors. The piano is uh, featured prominently in, in Rachmaninoff's compositions, um, and through his own skills as a performer, he explored the expressive possibilities of this instrument. Yeah, so that, uh, I guess that brings us to his, uh, his biography. Life. Might as well throw some of that. So uh, the Rachmaninoff family was of Russian and uh, distant, Mo- distant uh, Moldavian descent. Moldavian. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a part of the Russian aristocracy, having been in the service of the Russian Tsar since the 16th century, and had strong musical and military leanings. Uh, the composer's father, Vasily Arkadyevich Rachmaninov, uh, Arkadyevich, uh, he was uh, an amateur pianist and an army officer uh, who married this uh, woman named Lyubov Petrovna Butakova, mm-hmm. uh, Butakov. Uh, uh, so the, the two of them gained five estates as a dowry and had three boys and three girls. So, you know, they're basically a Catholic in their output. So uh, Sergei was born on the 1st of April, 1873. He was one of the first April Fool's jokes in all of uh, Russian music history. Uh, he was there at the estate of uh, Siemionovo in Onik, near uh, the great Novgorod in northwestern Russia, one of the lesser known parts of Russia, not very full of bustle, mm-hmm. war hustle. <laughs> and when Rachmaninoff was four years old, his mother gave him casual piano lessons, but it was his paternal grandfather, uh, Arkady Alexandrovich, who brought Anna, um, a teacher f- uh, from St. Petersburg, uh, to teach uh, Sergei in 1882. His teacher, Anna, remained for two or three years until Vasily had um, to uh, auction of their their home due to his financial incompetence. <laughs> the, the five estates had been reduced to one. He was described as a wastrel, a compulsive gambler, a pathological liar, a li- liar sorry, and a, a skirt ch- chaser. And they moved to a small flat in St. Petersburg. <laughs> not, a, not a great thing for your father to be known as. Yeah. So uh, Ornatskaya returned to her home and arranged for Sergei to study at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, which he entered at the, uh, in 1883 at the age of 10. Uh, that year, his sister Sophia died of diphtheria, and his father left the family with their approval from Moscow. 
Uh, Sergei's maternal grandmother stepped in to help raise the children, especially the, focusing on their spiritual life. She regularly took Sergei to Russian Orthodox masses uh, to uh, expose him to spiritual life there, where he was first exposed to the liturgical chants and the church bells of the city, which would later permeate many of his compositions, something he certainly would not have had the opportunity to do had he been born in the Soviet Union, which was, uh, which was later to come in the 1910s. Mm -hmm. Yep. Another important musical influence was his sister, Yelena's um, <clears throat> involvement in the Bolshoi uh, Theater. She was just about to join the company, um, being offered coaching and private lessons, but she fell ill and died of um, pernicious anemia at the age of 18. Um, as a respite from this tragedy, the grandmother Butakova uh, brought him to a farm retreat on the Volkov River, uh, where he had a boat and developed a love for rowing. Uh, having been spoiled in his way by his grandmother, he became lazy and failed his general education classes, altering his report cards in what uh, Korsakov would later call a period of, quote, purely Russian self-delusion and laziness, unquote. So Korsakov didn't think too well of him at first. Uh, well, you know, the later people would find the error of their ways. I'm kidding. Mm -hmm. So in 1885, back at the conservatory, Sergei played in, uh, at important events, often attended by Grand Duke Konstantin and other important people. But he failed to spring academic examinations, uh, failed those spring academic examinations he was taking, and Ornatskaya notified his mother that his admission might be revoked. So Lyubov consulted with her nephew by marriage, Alexandro Siloti, uh, already an accomplished pianist studying under Franz Liszt. Uh, after appraising his cousin's pianism and listening skills, Siloti recommended that Sergei attend the Moscow Conservatory to study with his own original teacher and disciplinarian, Nikolai Zvieriev. Mm -hmm. Good way to start. Okay. Neighboring families will come to visit, and Rachmaninoff would find his first romance in the uh, Scallon family with Vera, the youngest of three daughters. Uh, the mother would have none of that, and he was forbidden to write to her, so he corresponded with her older sister, Natalia, and from these letters, much information about his early compositions can be extracted. In the spring of 1891, he took his final piano examinations at the conservatory, Mos Moscow Conservatory, and passed with honors. Uh, he moved to Ivanovka with uh, Siloti and uh, composed uh, some songs and began what would become his piano concert number one, during his final studies at the conservatory, he completed Youth Symphony, uh, a one-movement symphonic piece, also The Prince Rostislav, a symphonic poem, and The Rock, Opus 7, a fantasia for orchestra. Uh, he gave his first independent concert on uh, 1892, premiering his trio Elegi Elegiac, number one. I, I think that's how you say it. Trio Elegiac. Elegiac, of course, it's French. Trio Elegiac, number one, uh, with, violins, with violinist David Crean, and uh, cellist An Anatoliev, Anatoly uh, Bra Bradukov. He performed the first movement of his piano concerto on March of 1892 in an over-long over concert consisting of entire works of most of the composition students at the conservatory. This, uh, this is a good opportunity to try and uh, to learn how to uh, pronounce some of the most obscure names in Russian. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know a lot of these people. What happened? What happened, Andrew? We were just together. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're over there and I'm over here. It seems like as a technical glitch, I've changed my attire and you've changed your attire. And uh, we, we are now in different time zones. Different time zones. <laughs> yeah, my camera <laughs> had technical issues last week, so we had to postpone the recording. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to continue talking about Rachmaninoff, of course. Well, right where we left off.
<laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, so yeah, his final composition for the conservatory was uh, a one-act opera called Alieko, uh, which is based on the poem The Gypsies uh, by Alexander Pushkin. Uh, the, Rachmaninoff completed this while staying with his father in Moscow. Uh, it, was, it was first performed in 1892 in May, and although he responded with a pessimistic, the opera is sure to fail, it was so successful the Bolshoi Theater agreed to produce it, starring Fyodor um, uh, Chalyapin. Uh, it gained him the, the great gold medal awarded only twice before, one to Sergei Tanyayev and uh, Arseny Koreshchenko, uh, and has since been many more, uh, has since had many more productions than his later works. Uh, the Miserly Night and Francesca di Rimini. Mm -hmm. The conservatory issued him a diploma on uh, May 29, 1892, and now at the age of 19 he could officially style himself, quote, a free artist, unquote, which is apparently a big, uh, you know, something that one can call oneself mm -hmm. after you yeah. have a diploma. Yeah. So Rachmaninoff continues to compose, publishing at this time his six songs, uh, Opus 4, and his two pieces, Opus 2, he spent the summer of 1892 uh, on the state of Ivan Konovalov, uh, a rich landowner in the Kastroma Oblast, and moved back with uh, the saints in the Arbat district. Uh, his publisher was slow in paying, uh, so Romanov took an, an, took an engagement at the Mos Moscow Electrical Exhibition, where he premiered his landmark Prelude in C-sharp minor, uh, which is his opus 3 number 2, and uh, this small piece Part of a set of five pieces called uh, Morceau de Fantasy uh, was received well and is one of his most enduring pieces. Ding, ding, ding. I guess the prelude in C sharp minor. So, yeah, he spent the summer of 1893 in Lebedin with some friends where he composed Fantasie Tableau, uh, Suite Number One, Opus Five, and his Morceau de Salon. Uh, Opus 10. At the summer's end, he moved back to Moscow and uh, at Sergei Tanyayev's house discussed with Tchaikovsky the possibility of his conducting The Rock at its premiere. However, because it had to be premiered in Moscow, not Europe, where uh, Tchaikovsky was touring, Vasily Safonov conducted it instead. And the two met soon after Zverev's funeral, Zverev being his old disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. uh, old teacher, Rachmaninoff, that is. So Rachmaninoff had a short excursion to conduct Aleko in Kiev, and on his return received the news about Tchaikovsky's unexpected death uh, on the 6th of November of 1893. Uh, no one knows why he died. So, um, mm -hmm. which we've talked about that. So on the same day, he began work on his Trio Elysiac, number two, just as Tchaikovsky had quickly written his trio in A minor after Nikolai Rubinstein's death. So the music, uh, its overwhelming aura of gloom um, sort of uh, reveals the depth and sincerity of his grief. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the, a long, long series of eulogy, eulogy pieces mm -hmm. uh, that composers always seem to do for each other. Yeah, yeah. So Rachmaninoff First Symphony, Opus 13 of 1896, was premiered on, actually on 1897 and is one of a long-running series of Russian symphonic concerts, but was brutally uh, panned by critics and nationalist composer Cesar Cui, who uh, likened it to a depiction of the Ten Plagues of Egypt, suggesting it would be admired by inmates uh, of a music conservatory in hell. <laughs> the deficiencies of the performance conducted by Alexand Alexander Glasunov were not condemned on by critics. Uh, Alexander Ozovsky, uh, in his memoir about Rachmaninoff, tells firsthand a story about this event. Um, in Ozovsky's opinion, Glasunov made poor use of rehearsal time and the concert program itself, which contained two other premieres, um, was also a factor. 
Natalia Satina, later uh, Rachmaninoff's wife, and other witnesses um, um, suggested that Glasunov, who was by all accounts an alcoholic, may have been drunk, uh, although this was never in, uh, intimated by Rachmaninoff. So Rachmaninoff himself was quite fond of booze, as I recall. Yeah, so Kui, Kui didn't like this first performance. <laughs> Kui didn't like a lot of things. <laughs> He's sort of an opinionated dude. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so after the poor reception of his first symphony, Rachmaninoff fell into a deep uh, depression that lasted for about three years, during which he wrote almost nothing. So, uh, one stroke of good fortune came from Sava Mamontov, uh, a famous Russian industrialist and patron of the arts, who two years earlier had founded the Moscow Private Russian Opera Company. Uh, he he offered Rachmaninoff the post of assistant conductor for the 1897 through 8 season. Uh, and a cash-strapped composer accepted. Uh, this cash-strapped composer, this Rachmaninoff. Uh, mm -hmm. the, com the company included the great boss, Fyodor uh, Chialyapin, uh, who uh, would become a lifelong friend. Uh, during this period, he became engaged to his first cousin and fellow pianist, Natalia Satina, uh, uh, whom he had known since childhood. The Russian Orthodox Church and Natalia's parents both opposed their marriage, and this thwarting of their plans only deepened Rachmaninoff's depression. Mm -hmm. Poor guy. Yeah. So in January of 1900, uh, Rachmaninoff and Chaplyapin Ch um, were invited uh, to Yasnaya Polyana, <laughs> the home of, of writer Leo Tolstoy, uh, whom Rachmaninoff greatly admired. The evening, um, that evening, Rachmaninoff played one of his compositions, then accompanied uh, Ch Chaplyapin <laughs> in his song Fate, uh, one of the pieces he had written after his first symphony. At the end of the performance, Tolstoy took the composer aside and asked, uh, is this such music needed by anyone? I must tell you how I dislike it all. Beethoven is nonsense, uh, Pushkin and, and Lermotov also. <laughs> the song Fate is based on two opening measures of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. As his guests were leaving, Tolstoy said, Forgive me if I've hurt you by my comments. And Romanov graciously replied, How could I be hurt by, by my own account if, if I was not hurt by Beethoven's? Uh, but the criticism of the great author stung, nevertheless. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah, so I've been thinking about how to pronounce this guy's name. Uh, Chalyapin. Turns out it's uh, Chalyapin. Mm -hmm. Cha rather than Cha. The CH must be through French. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love languages. So in the same year, Rachmaninoff began a course of autosuggestive therapy with psychologist uh, Nikolai Dahl who was himself an excellent, though amateur, musician. Rachmaninoff began to recover his confidence, and he, eventually he was able to overcome his writer's block. And in 1901, he completed his Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor, uh, Opus 18, and dedicated to Dr. Dahl. Uh, the, uh, the piece was enthusiastically received at its premiere, at which Rachmaninoff was soloist, and has since become one of the most popular and frequently played concertos in the repertoire. Uh, repertoire. Mm -hmm. Halfway between languages. Uh, Rachmaninoff's spirits were further bolstered when, after three years of engagement, he was finally allowed to marry his cousin and beloved fiancée, Natalia. Uh, they were wed at a suburb of Moscow by an army priest uh, in April 29, uh, 1902, using the family's military background to circumvent the church. The marriage was a happy one, producing two lovely incestual daughters, uh, Irina Sergeyevna Rachmaninova, Rachmaninova, um, uh, later, Princess Volnovsky, through her marriage to Prince um, uh, Pyotr Grigorievich Volkonsky, mm -hmm. uh, another person from Moscow, by whom she had a daughter, Princess Sofia Petrovna Volkonskaya, uh, who married firstly uh, 
on uh, September 28, 1950, Dallas Coors, without issue, and married secondly to a Wanamaker, by whom she had two children. Uh, so, yes, the, the large, a nice little series of uh, family people coming from there, lots of offspring. So, so although Rachmaninoff was rumored to have had an affair with 22-year-old singer Nina Koshetz in 1916, uh, his and Natalia's union lasted until the composer's own death. Natalia Rachmaninoff died, uh, Rachmaninova, Rachmaninov, Nova died in 1951. Same year Schoenberg died. Uh, his grandniece uh, Anila, French of uh, Russian descent, married wine merchant Claude Petel and is the mother of uh, Xavier Petel, Prime Minister of Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's wacky the kinds of people you'll meet on the job. Yeah. Uh, you just run into these random Prime Ministers of Luxembourg. Yeah, but yeah, that piano concerto, the piano concerto number two is, is, is the most famous, I think, piano concerto that you know if people are gonna are gonna play a concerto it's gonna be one of those because it's it's a really good piece right it's a great oh, yeah. piece kind of hard and i mean when yeah when people think about rock man enough they think about that piece the, the concerto number two <laughs> it's true so after several successful appearances as a conductor, Rogmaninoff was offered a job as a conductor at the Bolshoi Theater in 1904, although political reasons led to his resignation in March of 1906, uh, after which he stayed in Italy until July. He spent the following three winters in Dresden, Germany, intensively composing and returning to the family state in Ivanovka every summer. Rachmaninoff made, uh, Rachmaninoff made his first tour to the United States as a pianist in 1909, an event uh, of which he composed the Piano Concerto No. 3, Opus 30 of 1909, as a calling card. Uh, these successful concerts made him a popular figure in America. However, he was unhappy on the tour and declined requests for future American concerts until after he immigrated from Russia in 1917. Um, this included an offer to become permanent conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> he declined that. Yes. <clears throat> so in 1912, Rachmaninoff quit in protest from his position as the vice president of the Russian Musical Society when he heard that a musician in an administrative post with the organization was to be dismissed on the grounds that the musician was Jewish. Mm -hmm. uh, Sergei Bertensen, who is uh, one of Rachmaninoff's biographers, writes that uh, Rachmaninoff took his position in society seriously, and for Rachmaninoff, seriously meant with moral as well as artistic seriousness. Uh, they were really fused in him, uh, quote unquote said mm -hmm. Sergei Bertenson. Uh, Bertenson. Mm -hmm. So the early death in 1915 of Alexander Skriabin, who had been his good friend and fellow student at the Moscow Conservatory, affected Rachmaninoff so deeply that they went on a tour giving concerts entirely devoted to Skriabin's music, the wacky, theosophical, strange Skriabin. When mm -hmm. asked to play some of his own music, he would reply, only Skriabin tonight. Uh, mm -hmm. So he was, he was a person who was very devoted to other people, you know, nice mm -hmm. guy. Yeah. So the 1917 Russian Revolution meant the end of Russia as the composer had known it. Uh, Rachmaninoff was a member of the Russian bourgeois and the revolu revolution led to the loss of his estate, his way of life and his livelihood. On uh, December 22nd of 1917, he left Petrograd uh, for Helsinki with his wife and two daughters on an open sled, uh, having only a few notebooks with sketches of his own compositions uh, and two orchestral scores. His unfinished opera, Mona Vanna, and, and, Nikola, and Korsakov's opera, The Golden uh, Cockerel. He, the heck is he, a cockerel? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <What if> I, <laughs> I don't know why I'm looking at that. 
Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a chicken. A chicken, the golden chicken. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, at this time he was 44 years old. He spent a year giving concerts in Scandinavia while laboring to widen his concert repertoire. Near the end of eight, 1918, he received three offers of lucrative American contracts. Um, although he declined all three, he decided the United States might offer a solution to his financial concerns. Uh, he departed um, Oslo for uh, New York on November 1st of 1918. Once there, Rachmaninoff quickly chose an, an agent uh, who was Charles, Charles Ellis um, and accepted the gift of a piano from Steinway before uh, playing 40 concerts in a four-month period. At the end of the 1919-1920 uh, season, he also signed a contract with the uh, Victor Talking Machine Company. Um, and in 1921, the Rachmaninoff uh, bought a house in the United States where they con consciously created the atmosphere of Ivanovka, um, entertaining Russian guests, employing Russian servants, and observing old Russian customs. Having uh, their own little Russia there. Uh -huh. So he was, yeah, he got a nice sponsorship. He got the Wheaties box. He got. <laughs> he didn't actually get on Wheaties, but he basically on Wheaties. He, you know, Steinweg, later Steinway, and, and the Victor, a talk of uh, Victrola record player. So he was very much involved in American musical life there at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So due to his busy concert career, Rachmaninoff's output as composer slowed tremendously. He was a big performer, didn't write so much. So in the uh, 25 years between 1918 and his death in 1943, while living in the United States and Europe, he completed only six compositions. Aside from the need to tour and perform constantly to support himself and his family, the main reason was homesickness. It was during these years that he toured the United States as a concert pianist. When he left Russia, it was time. Uh, it was as if he had left uh, behind his inspiration. His his revival as a composer became possible only after he built himself a new home, uh, Via Senar, on Lake Lucerne, Switzerland, uh, where he spent many summers from 1932 to 1939. There, in the comfort of his own villa, which reminded him of his old family estate, Rachmaninoff composed through a rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, the one that, probably his best-known work, mm -hmm. is taking things upside down. He wrote that in 1934. He went on to compose his third symphony and the symphonic dances, his last completed work. Um, uh, Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra premiered the symphonic dances in 1941 at the Academy of Music. So he was a person who had a great deal of fame by this point in his life. People yeah. loved his music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in December of 1939, he conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra, and this was the first time he has stood on a conductor's podium since uh, 1917, his last appearance as a conductor in Russia. Um, also, in, in, late, in late 1940 or 41, uh, he was approached by the makers of the British film Dangerous Moonlight to write a short concerto-like piece to use in the film, but he declined. The job went to uh, Richard Adinsled, Adinsel, uh, and the orchestrator Roy Douglas, who came up with the, with the Warsaw Concerto. Uh, Seg uh, Rachmaninoff was also on the board of directors of the Tolstoy Foundation Center in uh, Valley Cottage of New York. So even though Tolstoy told him he didn't like his music, he was still part of his foundation. <laughs> in so yeah, so, so yeah, his, he, had, he, he was kind of everywhere in the world. I mean, really, the guy was everywhere. So one of his uh, friends was a pianist by the name of Vladimir Horowitz, uh, or Vladimir Horowitz. So just as the Rachmaninoff household in the United States strove to reclaim the lost world of pre-evolutionary Russia, Rachmaninoff also sought the friendship and company of some really important Russian musical luminaries. 
In addition to Shialyapin, uh, uh, he befriended the pianist Vladimir Horowitz in 1928. Their first meeting, arranged by Steinway, uh, artist representative Alexander Greiner, uh, took place in the basement of New York Steinway Hall uh, on January 8 of 1929, four days prior to Horowitz's debut at Carnegie Hall playing the Tchaikovsky First Piano Concerto. Rachmaninoff mentioned to Greiner that he intended to attend the concert and had heard positive things about Horowitz's playing of his own third piano concerto. He expressed a desire to accompany Horowitz in a performance of it. For Horowitz, the opportunity represented a dream come true, as he described it, quote, Rachmaninoff was the musical god of my youth. To think that this great man should accompany me in his own third concerto, this was the most unforgettable impression of my life. This was my real debut. <laughs> so he clearly made quite the impression on uh, on young Vladimir Horowitz. Uh, yeah. If you ever want to know who this guy is, he's, uh, he's all over YouTube. He's, he's, uh, mm -hmm. he's one of those pianists that became very famous for being able to uh, perform and, I don't know, to interpret works without being very precise, but to be very emotional about it. I think, mm -hmm. I think it's probably what he's best known for. Mm -hmm. Really great guy. Yeah. So Rachmaninoff, in a subsequent letter to Horowitz, offered praise and support to the pianist, but described Horowitz's tempos in the Tchaikovsky Concerto as too fast, especially the cadenza. Uh, about the pianist interpretation to, of Rachmaninoff's own, own, own third concerto, the composer said to Abraham, uh, Abraham Chasins uh, that Horowitz uh, swallowed it whole. He had the courage, the intensity, and the daring. <laughs> the men uh, remained supportive of each other's work, each making a point of attending concerts given by the other. Uh, they regularly gave two piano recitals at the composer's home in Beverly Hills. Uh, the recitals, never recorded, are known to have included Rachmaninoff's second suite and two, and two piano reduction of the symphonic dances. So in 1940, with the composer's consent, Horowitz created a fusion of the 1913 original and the 1931 revised versions of Rachmaninoff's second piano sonata. Horowitz remained a champion of Rachmaninoff's solo works and his third concerto, about which Rachmaninoff remarked publicly after uh, August of 1942, uh, after the, uh, the performance at Hollywood Bowl. Um, he said this, uh, This is the way I always dream my concerto should be played, but I never expected to hear it that way on earth. So clearly, uh, Rachmaninoff thinks very highly of Horowitz. Very good. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Rachmaninoff fell ill during a concert tour in late 1942 and was subsequently diagnosed with advanced melanoma. melanoma. Uh, his family was informed, but he was not. Uh, on, f on February 1st of 1943, he and his wife became um, American citizens. Uh, his last recital given on February 17th of 1943 at the alumni gymnasium of the, uh, at, of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville uh, included piano uh, Chopin's Piano Sonata No. 2, which contains that famous um, funeral march. Uh, a statue called Rachmaninoff's Last Concert, uh, designed um, and sculpted by Victor Bokarev, now stands in World Fair Park in Knoxville as a permanent tribute to Rachmaninoff. He became so ill after this recital that he had to return to his home in Los Angeles. And you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about uh, Rachmaninoff too, because you know, I went to this statue and it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool there in Knoxville. Yeah, you, <laughs> you live pretty darn close to that statue. That's kind oh of yeah, I live like ten, five minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> so Rachmaninoff died of melanoma on um, uh, 28th of March of 1943 in Beverly Hills, California, just four days before his 70th birthday. So uh, and, and at his funeral, a choir sang his all-night vigil. Uh, very well-known piece, has some very low notes in it. He has a low B-flat at one point. 
he had he had wanted to be buried at the Villa Senora, which was uh, his estate in Switzerland, but the conditions of World War II made fulfilling this request quite impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, he was therefore interred on the 1st of June in uh, Kensico Cemetery in Valhalla, New York. So mm -hmm. Rachmaninoff is one of the very few uh, A-list composers who actually made it to Valhalla at the end of his life. <laughs> Wagner didn't. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> Poor Wagner. So in August of 2015, Russia announced its intentions to seek uh, a reboreal of Rachmaninoff's remains in Russia, uh, claiming that Americans have neglect neglected the composer's grave while attempting to uh, shamelessly privatize, privatize his name. Uh, the composer's descendants have res re resisted this idea, pointing out that he died in the U.S. after spending decades outside of Russia in self-imposed political exile. Um, yep, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, so, so after Rachmaninoff's death, uh, the poet Marietta Shaginian uh, published 15 of the apparently many letters that they ex that exchanged between her first contacting him in February of 1912 and their final meeting in July of 1917. Although she had signed her letters simply re, uh, <coughs> Rachmaninoff, as R-E, Rachmaninoff had fairly quickly discovered her identity. Uh, the nature of, uh, of, uh, of Shaginian and Rachmaninoff's relationship bordered on romantic, but was primarily intellectual and emotional. Uh, though emotional cheating is cheating, no. So anyway, uh, uh, Shaginian and the poetry she shared with Rachmaninoff during their correspondence has been cited as the inspiration for the six songs that make up Rachmaninoff's 38th opus. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, yet another facet of his personal life there. Yeah. Shaginian like sounds like a good Armenian lady. Yeah, in this relationship, kind of like Nadezhda, Nadezhda von, von Meck with Tchaikovsky, you know? Yeah, minus <laughs> all the money. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> true. So let's talk a little bit about his works. So Rachmaninoff wrote uh, five works for piano and orchestra, four concertos, and um, a number one in F-sharp minor, opus one, um, uh, was composed in 1891 but revised in 1917. Uh, his concert number two in C minor, opus 18, uh, written between 1900 and 1901. Um, concert number three in D minor, opus 30, written in 1909. And concert number four in G minor, opus 40, um, written in 1926 but revised in 1928 and again in 1941. Uh, uh, plus the Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, um, of course, this work. Um, Which is basically a concerto. Yeah, basically. It's just <laughs> without the concerto form. Name, yeah. A series of. Mm -hmm. Variations and of these concertos, uh, his uh, the second and third are his most popular. Uh, so Rachmaninoff also composed a number of works for orchestra alone, you know, without the piano. Mm -hmm. uh, the three symphonies, number one in D minor, Opus 13, was written in 1895. Number two in E minor uh, was written in 1907, and number three in A minor, which was written between 35 and 36. Mm -hmm. uh, those are opuses 13, 27, and 44, respectively. Mm -hmm. So widely spaced chronologically, the symphonies represent three distinct phases in his compositional development. Mm -hmm. The second has been his most popular of the three since its first performance. Uh, mm -hmm. It just has very canonical tunes. People hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. so, so other orchestral works include The Rock, which is his uh, opus 7, Caprice Bohemian, uh, opus 12, and The Isle of the Dead, which is opus 29, and The Symphonic Dance is opus 45. You know, if it's if you memorize all the opus numbers of Rachmaninoff, you can really impress people at bars. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> and I love I love this symphonic one, the Isle of the Dead. It's really good work. I really like that that work. Um, so um, works for piano solo include the twenty four preludes, uh, traversing all twenty four major and minor keys. Uh, his prelude in C sharp minor, opus three, number two, uh, from Morzu de Fantasie, opus three. Uh, ten preludes in. Um, 
uh, in Opus 23 uh, and 13 uh, preludes in Opus 32. Um, especially uh, difficult are the two sets of Etudes Tableau, uh, Opus 33 and 39, which are very demanding study um, uh, pictures. Uh, stylistically, Opus, Opus 33 harkens back to the preludes, uh, while Opus 39 shows the influence of Scriabin and Prokofiev. There are also six, six movement uh, musico, which is Opus 16, uh, also the variations on a theme of Chopin, Opus 22, and the variations on a theme of Corelli, Opus 40, 42. He wrote two piano sonatas, uh, both of which are large-scale and virtuosic in their in-technical demands. Prakhonev also composed works for two pianos, four hands, including two suites, the first um, so, uh, subtitled Fantasy Tableau, uh, a version of the Symphonic Dances, Opus 45, and an arrangement of the C-sharp minor prelude, um, as well as the Russian Rhapsody, and he arranged his first symphony um, for piano for, uh, in four hands. Both uh, these works were published uh, posthumously. So Rachmaninoff uh, wrote two major a cappella choral works. Uh, the one that no one knows about called The Liturgy of St. John Christosom. I'm kidding, people do know the <laughs> Chrysostom. Uh, people do know that one, but they sure know the all-night vigil a lot better. Uh, this is also known as The Vespers. Uh, it was the fifth movement of all-night vigil that Rachmaninoff requested to have sung at his funeral. Other choral works include a choral symphony, The Bells, um, the name of the choral symphony, uh, the Cantata Spring, the three Russian songs, and an early concerto for choir, which was a cappella. Uh, so yeah, those, so the the All Night Vespers, probably the best known movement of that is Bogorodetsyetievu, uh, the mm -hmm. Ave Maria that people always sing at Christmas time. Wonderful mm -hmm. piece. Mm -hmm. So he also completed three operas. Um, all were really short. Uh, Aleko of nineteen eighty-two, of eighteen ninety-two. Sorry, the the Miserly Night of nineteen o three, and Francesca da Rimini of nineteen o four. He started uh, three others, uh, notably um, Mona Vanna, uh, based on a work by Maurice Maeterlinck. Um, copyright in this uh, had been extended uh, to the composer's Fevier, uh, and. Uh, and through the restrictions did not pertain to Russia, Rachmaninoff dropped the project after completing Act One in piano vocal score in 1908. This act was orchestrated in, 1940, uh, in 1984 by Igor Bukert, Buktov uh, and performed in the U.S. Uh, Aleko is regularly performed um, and has um, and has been recorded complete at least eight times and filmed as well. The Miserly Night ad adheres to Pushkin's uh, Little Tragedy. Uh, Francesca da Ramini exists somewhat in the shadow of the familiar, though entirely different, Sanodai opera of, the, of that name. Yeah, so Ricardo's Tandonai, uh, uh, really, I think a pretty obscure Italian composer from the early 20th century. I, I was quite unfamiliar with the guy. Mm -hmm. um, so he also uh, had written a, uh, a Francesca da Ramini. Francesca. <laughs> so yeah, he, so he, it's entirely different work though than, than Rachmaninoff's. Mm -hmm. So uh, his chamber music, uh, Rachmaninoff's chamber music, includes two pianos, uh, uh, sorry, two piano trios, uh, both of which are named uh, Trio Elegiac, the second of which is a memorial tribute to Tchaikovsky and a cello sonata. He also composed many songs for voice and piano to text by A.N. Tolstoy, Pushkin, uh, Goethe, Shelley, Hugo, and Chekhov, among others. Uh, among his most popular songs is the wordless vocalese, which... Uh, I mean, there are whole albums of different arrangements of that piece. Like I know of a single album that just has that tune over and over again, every track with a different mm -hmm. version of it. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I think my favorite vocalese is uh, Clara Rockmore on the theremin, since her birthday was last week. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves the first electronic instrument, the theremin. Yeah. 
Yes, it's pretty cool, Current. actually. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, the vocalese is often done on the, on the theorem. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful instrument. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Works for pretty much every instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, so, vocalese, well known. So, uh, yeah. All right, so let's talk about his style. Uh, Rachmaninoff's style showed initially the influence of Tchaikovsky, beginning in the mid-1980s. His composition began showing a more individual tone. His first symphony has many original features. His brutal gestures and uncompromising power of expression were unprecedented in, in Russian music at the time. Its flexible rhythms, sweeping lyricism, and stringent economy of thematic material were all features he kept and refined in subsequent works. After the three uh, follow years, um, after the three follow years following the poor res reception of the symphony, Rachmaninoff's style began developing significantly. He started leaning towards uh, sumptuous harmonies and uh, broadly lyrical, often passionate melodies. His orchestration became subtle and more varied, with textures carefully contrasted, and his writing uh, on the whole became more concise. Especially important is Rachmaninoff's use of unusually widely spaced chords for bell-like sounds, something that really only he and a few other people can physically do on a piano. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because Rachmaninoff he had... Huge hands. Enormous, enormous hands. There, mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't seen it, you should go on YouTube and look at uh, Rachmaninoff's big hands. There's a YouTube video of somebody who's crafted big wooden sheets that they just grab and throw on the piano to hit the chords of Rachmaninoff without having to roll it across. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, uh, so that is. Uh, but anyway, so, so having these widely spaced chords for bell-like sounds occurs in many pieces, such as his choral symphony, The Bells, the second piano concerto, the E-flat major, Et tout tableau, uh, and the B minor prelude. Quote, it is not enough to say that the church bells of Novgorod, St. Petersburg, and Moscow influence Rachmaninoff and, and feature prominently in his music, this much is evident. Um, what is extraordinary is the variety of bell sounds and breadth of structural and other functions they fulfill from a, a scholar talking about him. So he was also fond of Russian Orthodox chants, C-H-A-N-T-S. Uh, uh, he, he used them most perceptively in his Vespers, but many of his melodies found their origins in these chants. The opening melody of the First Symphony is derived from these chants. Uh, the opening melody of the Third Piano Concerto, on the other hand, is not derived from chants. When asked what Rodinoff simply said, it had written itself, unquote. Uh, so yeah, Rachmaninoff's frequently used motives include uh, the, the Dies Irae, often of just the fragments of the first phrase. Uh, Rachmaninoff uh, had great command of counterpoint and fugal writing, thanks to his studies with Tanyayev. Uh, and the above-mentioned occurrence of the Dies Irae in the Second Symphony is but a small example of this. Very characteristic of his writings is chromatic counterpoint, something I'm sure he probably picked up from... Uh, listening to Prokofiev and Shostakovich. Um, mm -hmm. This talent is paired with the confidence in writing uh, in both large and small-scale forms. The third piano concerto especially shows the structural ingenuity while each of the preludes grows from a tiny melodic rhythmic fragment into a taut, powerfully evocative miniature, uh, crystallizing a particular mood or sentiment while employing a complexity of texture, uh, rhythmic flexibility, and lots of good, crunchy, chromatic harmony. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His, his compositional style has had already begun changing before the October Revolution deprives him of his homeland. Uh, the harmonic writing in the Bells, um, composed in 1913 but not published until 1920, became at, as advanced as in any of the works Rachmaninoff would write in Russia, partly because the melodic material has a harmonic aspect which arises from its chromatic ornamentation. 
further changes are apparent in the revised uh, first piano concerto, which he finished just before leaving Russia, as well as the Opus 38 song and Opus 39 Etude Tableau. Um, in both these sets, Rachmaninoff was less concerned with pure melody than with coloring. His near impressionist style perfectly matched the text uh, by symbolist poets. Uh, the Opus 39 Etude Tableau are among the amongst among the most demanding pieces he wrote for any medium, both technically and in the sense that uh, the player must see beyond any technical challenges to a considerably array of emotions, then unify all these aspects. So the composer's friend, uh, Vladimir Wilshaw, noticed uh, this compositional change continuing in the early 1930s, with the difference between the sometimes very extroverted Opus 39 Etude Tableau, and the composer had broken a string on the piano at one performance, and the variations on the theme of Corelli. Uh, the variations show an even greater textual clarity than the Opus 38 songs. Combined with a more abrasive use of chromatic harmony and uh, a new rhythmic incisiveness, this would be characteristic of all later, all his later works. The Piano Concerto Number no. Four, Opus 40, 1926, is composed in a more emotionally introverted style with a greater clarity of texture. Nevertheless, some of his most beautiful, uh, and by that I mean both nostalgic and melancholy melodies, occur in the Third Symphony, uh, Rhapsody on a Theme by Paganini, and uh, Symphonic Dancing. So, uh, his reputation as a composer generated a variety of opinions before his music gained steady recognition across the world. In 1954, um, sorry, the 1954 edition of the Groove Dictionary of Music and Musicians notoriously dismissed Rachmaninoff's music as monotonous in texture, consisting mainly of artificial and gushing tunes, unquote, and predicted that his popular success was not likely to last. Uh, to this, Harold Schoenberg, in his Life of the Great Composers, responded, quote, It is one of the most outrageously snobbish and even stupid statements ever to be found in a work that is supposed to be an objective, objective reference. Uh, unquote. So there you go. <laughs> That's funny. Well, he did have some some degree of reputation after he was no more. The Conservatoire Rachmaninoff in Paris, as well as streets in Vieliki Novgorod, uh, which is close to his birthplace, and Tambov, are named after the composer. In 1986, well, just a year before I was born, uh, mm -hmm. the, the Moscow Conservatory dedicated a concert hall on its premises to Rachmaninoff, dedicating the 252-seat auditorium Rachmaninoff Hall. The monument Rachmaninoff was unveiled in Vyeliki Novgorod near his birthplace uh, on June 14, 2009, which, you know, is not too long ago at all. I believe I was in, I was in Orlando on that day, I remember. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. That's good memory. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, um, you know, when, when I was, because uh, one, one of the teachers here told me about the statue of Rachmaninoff that I didn't know was in Knoxville, and um, he told me that uh, supposedly that was the only statue of, of uh, Rachmaninoff in the world, and I googled a little bit, and yeah, I mean, there's, it was the only statue of, of Rachmaninoff until 2009, until this uh, monument was, um, was done to him. Um, so All let's talk it about takes is someone to make another statue. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, Rachmaninoff ranked among the pianist pianists of his time, along with uh, Godowski, uh, Friedman, uh, Rosenthal, uh, Joseph Levine, and Joseph Hoffman. Um, and he was famed for possessing a clean and virtuosic technique. 
His playing was marked by precision, rhythmic drive, notable use of staccato, and the ability to maintain clarity uh, when playing works with complex textures. Rachmaninoff, uh, Rachmaninoff applied these qualities in music by Chopin, including the B-flat minor P, uh, sonata. Uh, Rachmaninoff's repertory, uh, except in his own works, consisted mainly of standard 19th century virtuoso works, uh, plus music by Bach, Beethoven, Borodin, WC, Grieg, Liszt, Mendelssohn, Mozart, Schubert, Schumann, and Tchaikovsky. <laughs> So, uh, like I said before, Rachmaninoff possessed extremely large hands. Mm -hmm. uh, this doesn't mean anything, it has no real implication on any other part of his body, but, with which, <laughs> uh, but he could use these hands uh, to easily maneuver through the most complex chordal configurations. It was kind of outrageous how large his hands were. So his left hand technique was unusually powerful. His playing was marked by definition. Where other pianists playing became blurry sounding from overuse of the pedal or deficiencies in finger technique, Rachmaninoff's textures were always crystal clear. He had a pretty good, clean idea of how to do things with all those really long fingers of his. So, um, as part of his daily warm-up exercises, Rachmaninoff would play the technically difficult etude in A-flat, Opus 1, number mm -hmm. 2, attributed to Paul de Schlutze. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, it's... he... which... Uh, that... that's quite a difficult etude to, to manage, at least every morning. Yeah. Yeah, Rachmaninoff, Rachmaninoff also possessed an uncanny memory, one that would help him, uh, one that would help to put him in good stead with uh, when he had to learn the the standard piano repertory as a 45-year-old exile. He could hear a piece of music, even a symphony, and then play it back the next day, the next year, or a decade or, or a decade after uh, that. Silotti uh, would give uh, him a long and demanding piece to learn. Uh, such as Brahms' variation on a few on a theme by, by Handel. Um, two days later, Rachmaninoff would play it with complete artistic finish. Um, Alexander Goldweiser said, uh, "Whatever compositions uh, was he, was ever mentioned, piano, orchestra, operatic, or other, by a classical or contemporary composer, if Rachmaninoff had at any time heard it, uh, and most of all, if he liked it, he played it as though he um, as though it were a work he had studied throughoutly." So, really good memory. Oh yeah, I mean, and Golden Weiser was a uh, pretty important dude. He taught piano. He's a pianist over there in in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, he he was uh, he, the reason I know him is just because he uh, he was the teacher of Nikolai Kapustin, the great jazz mm -hmm. uh, Ukrainian uh, composer. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe one day we'll talk about Kapustin. He doesn't do a lot mm -hmm. of. Uh, uh, symphonic stuff. If mm -hmm. he does, there's no like jazz band. Anyway, uh, along with his musical gifts, Rachmaninoff possessed physical gifts that may have placed him in good stead as a pianist. Uh, these gifts, of course, included exceptional height and extremely large hands with a gigantic finger stretch. He could play the chord C E flat G uh, C G with his left hand. That is, mm -hmm. uh, his hand is reaching an octave and a fifth while playing. Uh, the uh, the third, the fifth, and the root with That's his crazy. other three fingers. That's an enormous, enormous hand. Yeah. Uh, That's the left hand we're talking about. So this, and the same with the right, just, you know, backwards. So this and Rachmaninoff's slender frame, long limbs, narrow head, prominent ears, and thin nose suggest that he may have had a Marfan syndrome, a hereditary disorder of the connective tissue. Uh, this syndrome would have accounted for several minor ailments he suffered all his life, including back pain, arthritis, eye strain, and bruising of the fingertips. Although others have pointed out that this is uh, more likely because he was playing the piano all day long. Mm -hmm. uh, this Marfan speculation was proposed 
um, by Dr. D.A.B. Young, formerly the principal scientist of the Wellcome Foundation, in a 1986 British Medical Journal article. But you know, as a as a musicologist, we always have to, as musicologists, we always have to be very careful about posthumous diagnosis. Yeah. It's always a really bad idea. Yeah. Not only for that, but I mean. There's just no way of testing these things. You're just, exactly. you're just talking in the wind. Yeah, you like can't. <laughs> it's like saying Mozart had ADD. Yeah. Well, he probably did, but we have no way of Who knowing. And That's our right. conception, our conception of ADD will change over the years. Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, we arrive at, at the piece we're going to be talking about today, which is his Symphony Number no. Two in E Minor, Opus Twenty Seven, and um, this is his most famous. You know, probably one of his most famous uh, symphonies. I prefer, I mean, he only has three, right? But uh, I like, I, I personally like his three a little better, but these are both great voices. His second and third symphony are really good. So uh, this was uh, written between 1906 and 1907. I think we thought we said that before. And the premiere was conducted by the composer himself in St. Petersburg on the, uh, on the February 8th of 1908. Its duration is approximately an hour when performed when performed on cut. Uh, cut performances can be as short as 35 minutes. The score is dedicated to uh, Sergei Tanyeev, our the composer, teacher, theorist, and author, uh, who was a uh, pupil of Tchaikovsky. Uh, alongside his piano concerto number no. three, uh, this symphony remains one of the composer's best known compositions. <clears throat> So yeah, I mean, you know that that's when 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 I read this, it said that you know you can cut the performance if you want to, you know, and a lot of composers, a lot of conductors do that. You know, they cut, especially in operas, right? In operas, conductors usually cut things to make things a little shorter. But I mean, that's not done as much in in symphonic pieces, you know. So it's it's kind of interesting to to know that actually there are conductors out there that are cutting these composers' symphonies into shorter works. Yeah, we tend to kind of sacralize or you know to sort of yeah idealize these symphonic works so we're afraid of cutting it apart but it's just music it's designed mm -hmm. to be enjoyed yeah uh, so at the time the symphony number no. two was composed Rachmaninoff had had two successful seasons as the conductor of the imperial opera at the bolshoi theater in moscow he considers him he considered himself first and foremost a composer and felt that the performance schedule was detracting from his time to compose uh, he he moved uh his wife and infant daughter to Dresden, Germany, as we mentioned before, to mm -hmm. spend more time composing and also to escape the political tumult that would put Russia on the path to revolution. Mm -hmm. Later on, not too much later, but later on. The family remained in Dresden for three years, spending summers at Rachmaninoff's in-law's estate of Ivanovka. Uh, it was during this time that Rachmaninoff wrote not only of his second symphony, but also of the tone poem Isle of the Dead. Well, he wrote that during that period yeah, as well. the same time. So Rachmaninoff was not altogether convinced, convinced that he was a gifted symphonist. Uh, at, at its uh, 1898, uh, sorry, at its 1897 premiere, uh, his symphony number no. one, conducted by Glasinov, was considered another disaster. Criticism of it was so harsh that it sent the young composer in a bout of depression, like we said before. Even after the success of his piano concerto number no. two, um, Rachmaninoff, uh, which won the Glinka Award and 500 uh, rubles in 1904, so he made some money with that. So Rachmaninoff still lacked confidence in his writing. Um, he was very unhappy with his first draft of his second symphony, but after months of revision, he finished the work and conducted it, the premiere in 1908 to great applause. Uh, the work earned him another Glinka Award 10 months later. Um, the triumph regained uh, Rachmaninoff's sense of self-worth as a symphony, uh, symphony, so he gained his confidence back with this symphony. Oh yes, uh, but due to its uh, formidable length, uh, sub symphony number no. two was subjected to many revisions, particularly in the late 1940s and 50s. 
this reduced the piece from nearly an hour to 35 minutes, as we said before. You can, you mm -hmm. can cut the mess out of it. So uh, prior mm -hmm. to 1970, the piece was usually performed in one of its revised versions. Uh, though since then, orchestras have used the complete version almost exclusively, because, you know, now that he's dead, we have to worship the music. <laughs> yeah. That's the way it goes, you know. Look at this masterpiece. We have to enjoy all 60 minutes of it. Uh, I mean, it's just music. Just enjoy it, right? So yeah. since then, orchestras have had the complete version. Uh, since then, they've, they've always done that. Uh, though sometimes with the omission of a repeat in the first movement. So just to mm -hmm. keep things going, they'll negate yeah. that repeat. Well, uh, that, the, that happens a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah all the time. People hate rehearing things. People hate repetition of music. I mean, have you ever heard anything <laughs> on the radio ever? Oh, that's right. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the manuscript of Rachmaninoff's Symphony Number no. 2 is owned by the Tabor Foundation and is on permanent loan to the British Library. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this uh, symphony score in, uh, is for a full orchestra, of course, with three flutes, the third doubling on piccolo, three oboes, the third doubling on, on English horn, uh, two clarinets in A and B flat, a bass clarinet in A and B flat, two bassoons, four horns, three trumpets, three trombones, a tuba, a timpani, a snare drum, a bass drum, a cymbals, a glockenspiel, and strings. So yeah, it's a, it's a big orchestra, so, you know, normal for the time. Uh, the opening motto uh, theme is played by the cellos and basses and is repeated throughout the symphony. Um, and uh, the moment the movement is in uh, sorry the symphony is in four movements uh the first movement is largo uh, allegro moderato uh, in e minor so it's got an introduction then the second movement is allegro molto in a minor the third movement is adagio in a major and the last movement is allegro vivace in e major <laughs> the, f the first movement begins with a slow introduction in which the motto theme of the symphony is introduced and developed. This leads to an impassioned climax, after which an English horn solo leads the uh, movement into the allegro and sonata form. Assuming the symphony is performed uncut, this also includes a full repeat of the exposition. In contrast to the exposition, the development is stormy at times and moves through multiple key centers. Only the first subject and central motto theme are used in the development. After a long dominant pedal, the music slowly transitions to the recapitulation in E major, in which only the second subject is recapitulated, but is heavily expanded on compared to the exposition. Uh, this device of omitting the first subject from the recap was also used by Tchaikovsky in the second, fourth, and sixth symphonies. And then he ends it with a coda in E minor, uh, which concludes the movement quite loudly. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, uh, that's just a little bit of... Um, a bit of history. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting. So it, it did follow a pretty clear sonata form, except it doesn't have the first theme at the, uh, end. At the end of the recap, which is just yeah. bizarre to be. Yeah, very strange. I guess if you're, if you're in a culture that deletes the repetition of the exposition, you might as well just never hear the theme again. Whatever. <laughs> What's the point anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the second moment is uh, really only resembles. So the, uh, the second moment uh, really only resembles a scherzo insofar as it relates to the uh, early uh, to mid-romantic tradition of symphony symphonic movements and its use of a typical scherzo form A B A C A B A. Uh, the movement in A minor opens with a lively ostinato in the upper strings as a fixture in large-scale works by Rachmaninoff. Uh, the Dies Irae plenchant is re referenced here uh, and. In the opening in the opening bars by the horn, the B section is a lyrical cantabile melody in C minor. In C minor, C major, sorry. The central trio section notably begins with the sudden tutti fortissimo chord and is an example of Rachmaninoff's mastery of counterpoint and fugal writing, thanks to um, his studies with uh, Taniyev. Taniyev. 
um, to whom his symphony is dedicated. Uh, at the conclusion of the movement, the DS ear is again stated, this time by, the bra by a brass choir. The movement ends pianissimo, um, and, you know, in contrast to the first movement. <coughs> pianissimo. That's right. Pianissimo. Uh, <laughs> pianissimo. <laughs> So anyway, the, this movement is uh, is in a, uh, well, uh, the third movement, I should say, the, the one after the second. The third movement is uh, is in a broad three-part form and is often remembered for its opening theme, which is played by the first violins and restated both as a melody and as an accompanying figure later on in the movement. Uh, this opening theme, however, is really an introduction to the main melody of the movement, uh, which is presented in by a, a lengthy clarinet solo and is typical uh, is a typical Rachmaninoff creation, circling around single notes and accompanied by rich harmony. Uh, the second part of the movement is based on the initial motto theme of the symphony, and in many ways is a direct complement to the introduction of the first movement, leading uh, to an impassioned climax in C major. Uh, after uh, a transition back to the opening theme, the central melody of the movement is restated, this time played by the first violins, while fragments of the opening theme are heard in the accompaniment. The movement concludes in a tranquil uh, way, uh, dying away slowly in the streams. And the final movement, the, four mo the fourth uh, movement, is set in sonata form, just like the, the, the first one. And the lively, fanfare-like first theme is played by the entire orchestra, leading into a march-like interlude played by the woodwinds. Um, after the return of the first theme, the first subject is concluded, and transitions directly into a massive, broad melody played by the strings. Uh, after dying down to pianissimo, the third movement is briefly recalled. Uh, following this, the development section begins, uh, which is in two sections. The first of which introduces new, mel new melodic ideas, and uh, the latter of which resolves around a descending scale. The recapitulation initially, initially only presents the first subject before moving into a dominant pedal, uh, building up to the triumphant restatement of the broad melody, uh, in which fragments of the entire uh, theme, uh, motto theme, and descending scale can be heard in the accompaniment. An emph emphatic coda brings the symphony to a close, concluding uh, with another fixture to Rachmaninoff's large-scale works, the characteristic four-note uh, rhythm ending. Um, in this case, uh, presented in a triplet rhythm, uh, also heard in his cello sonata, second and third piano concertos, and in an altered form in his fourth piano concerto, and also in, in symphonic dances. So he's got his trope that he's gonna use here at the end. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, and there you go, we've talked about Rokhanov and his second symphony. Is there anything else you wanna say, Andrew? 
No, I think we've just about covered everything there is to know about Rockland. Yeah, especially <laughs> his, I mean, we said everything that we need to know about his life. He was pretty extensive. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's sort of a, another Forrest Gump character, just sort of saw yeah. everything. Uh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I wanted to, to talk about him since we were all about, um, you know, Tennessee last week. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I mean last week. You mean earlier today. Oh, yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, of course, um, thank you again for listening. And if, if you can find us on iTunes and your favorite podcast app, apps if you have a phone of course uh, you can also find us on youtube and where we put the videos and with all the annotations and all that and all those things um of course you can email us at symphonicpodcast at gmail.com if you want to ask any questions or anything like that um and until next time thank you for listening thank you for listening booyah yay <laughs>